we are recording. Also, Tom's making his music right now. Entry music. Oh, nice. Yeah. Tom, Tom does that? Yeah. Well, it's like, it sounds like Drake, but I'm rapping. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Three, two, Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, I'm with Dr. Austin Baraki, and today we're going to talk about starting strength, novice, linear progression, uh, do's and don'ts, and why we think you should do it uh, if you are a gen- oh fuck, god damn it, I was doing so well. Give me another try. Alright, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. You're back at the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I'm with Dr. Austin Baraki, and today we're talking about the starting strength novice linear progression. How's it going, Austin? Doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well here in the cave in Santa Monica. Um, All right, so today uh, we're going to have a 20-minute podcast just talking about the starting strength novice linear progression, and it should be said that if you're not familiar with the program, if you just simply Google that, you're going to get a ton of results. Um, although not all of them have been vetted. In fact, if you go and ser- search around long enough, you'll actually find weird things like a five by five program or a program right. you know that looks more like a Texas method than starting strength. So just for uh, uh, everyone being on the same level, what is the starting strength novice linear progression? Uh, it's a basic barbell program designed for general strength trainees, not focused on specifically on competitive powerlifting, which is sometimes a misconception about the program. Basically, um, it's a it's a AB type program. You train three days a week. Uh, you squat every session, three sets, five reps. Uh, you alternate upper body lifts, the bench press and the overhead press for three sets, five reps each, and then you'll deadlift afterwards for a set of five. And the idea is that in the novice phase of training, when you're able to adapt quickly, uh, it is a phase of training where you're able to add weight to the bar essentially every session. And so that's how the way the program works, and you run it as long as you can when you're a novice. So, okay, good. So day one, you'd go in the gym, squat three sets of five, then you'd press three sets of five, and then you would deadlift for one set of five. Day two, you would go in the gym, you'd squat again, three sets of five, you'd bench press this time for three sets of five, uh, and then you would deadlift again, actually, because at the very beginning of the program, um, Mm -hmm. we actually have people deadlift uh, every session until they they show that they can do it uh, uh, with very good technique, and then we space it out to usually once per week. Um, and then we, we plug in chin-ups or pull-ups uh, and power cleans as well in there, usually on. Would you say it's a fair statement to, that you would include those starting week two with a person who can deadlift with good technique? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's reasonable. Yeah, because one of the questions... Although sometimes sometimes if I have people who are nowhere near being able to do their first chin-up, I might have them continue to deadlift every session for a little while longer. Sure. Uh, for a couple weeks or something just to start to develop a little bit more back strength and then switch them to lat pull downs until we get to the point where we start working towards their first pull up. So, yeah. and, that, and that should be stated that that's, you know, just different coaching preferences. So Austin does that. I tend to have people do either rows, uh, either inverted rows or barbell rows if they can't do pull ups or chin ups. Um, and maybe power cleans aren't an option for them for whatever reason. But in general, I don't have people deadlift every session after two weeks. Um, at that point, I usually have them deadlift once per week and I'm adding. Uh, weight in sort of five to ten pound increments, um, mm-hmm. and so basically, again, and you in your initial assessment, you kind of said that the definition of a novice is that they can add weight to the bar um, every training session. And so, in this setup, it's every forty-eight hours you train Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or something like that. And when you can no longer add weight in that increment, that it that tells you that you're no longer novice. Would you agree with 
with that statement? Um, I think if, if everything else is done correctly, then that is the correct conclusion. But there are a number of ways that people mess it up and kind of can come to uh, erroneously come to the conclusion that they're no longer a novice when they in fact still are. So this is different or the same as being an artificial intermediate? No, I'm saying this is situations where people might have technical issues or they might have other problems that, that might otherwise inhibit them from being able to add weight to the bar every session. And so they say, oh, I need to move on to intermediate programming, for example. But so yeah, the, inter the artificial intermediate is another important concept, too. Right. So let's first talk about the, you know, the people, you know, reasons why you're actually still a novice. Um, you know, what would you say the biggest, the biggest uh, issues are there? You said technique, right? So, you, you know, you see people who have poor technique who need to see a coach. Uh, coach who's familiar with this model to correct them on that. Mm -hmm. All right, what else would you say? Um, uh, the other the other big ones are the things that Rip likes to talk about as being the first three questions where he talks about how long you're resting between your work sets as, as a reason why people commonly fail a work set and say, oh, I'm done, I need to deload or I need to go to an intermediate programming. Sure. Um, if they're not consuming enough calories to facilitate recovery or otherwise not paying attention or able to uh, facilitate enough of uh, enough proper recovery. Um, and then also the increments or the weight jumps that they're taking session to session because really a super common issue is people who really expect that they're going to be able to keep adding five pounds a session to their press for a long period of time, which is almost never the case. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, if you think of even if someone started with a pretty good press, 100 for three sets of five, which I think you would agree is a pretty stout first day press, um, you know, yeah. adding five, you're adding 5% every single time you know yeah um, that's huge yeah, yeah exactly yeah. it's huge so my my press maybe hasn't moved five percent in in you know years <laughs> so right. um yeah i would agree and i so i think in general if push comes to shove and i am i can't observe the session each time someone trains i'm just going to tell them hey add five pounds each time on your squat add two you know you know one to two pounds mm -hmm. on your press and bench every time and then it'll slow down when it slows down the idea isn't you know to 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 stall quickly. The idea is right. that, uh, you know, somewhere around that three month mark is where you should hit your first kind of stall. And so I think if people look back retrospectively and they say, ah, you know, I hit my first stall within four weeks, something was wrong. They started mm -hmm. too heavy. Yeah. Technique wasn't good. You know, the recovery stuff just wasn't there to actually do this linear progression. And I think that's, a, that's, that's an issue, you know, uh, uh, and people will, well, now I'm an intermediate, but they never really have developed that training base because they've never gone through the full novice progression. And so now you're compounding the issue. You go to more complex training stuff without ever having built your base. Uh, yeah, there's you there's something. Yeah, so there's something to be said. So so we like to say that the the novice program will get you like the quickest, most efficient progress possible. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you don't want to stall too quick. So I could blow through five pound increments really fast and have someone stall relatively soon. Or there's there's certain trainees, older folks, certain females, where you'll have them essentially microload their press almost from the very beginning or they might add five pounds for their first session and then beyond that they you know it's already kind of to the point where you want to increment them uh, a little bit more slowly and so that's for a multitude of reasons both so that they don't stall out as quickly there's some psychological benefit that they can continue making progress for a little bit longer they can continue training in this linear fashion it refine their technique build that training base over a longer period of time before it's time to move on to something a little bit fancier right right i agree so um, I think the next question, we talk about the uh, situational uh, intermediates. So these are the folks who, you know, are older, um, you know, in general, uh, or that's a very common one if you're, if you're advanced age and you just don't have the resources mm -hmm. to, to recover quick enough. 
um, or if you have to be, you know, your your schedule for whatever reason, you know, your military, your law enforcement, your medical resident, you know, whatever, yeah. you just don't right. have the resources to recover, even if you were eating enough and everything else. Well, you're 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 not going to be able to progress at that same rate, and so you're an artificial intermediate at that time. Um, but I do think, yeah, the rips first three questions. So, how much time would you have people uh, rest on average between sets? So I'll I'll typically start out and uh, you know at, at someone at the very beginning of someone's novice program, the weights are usually sufficiently light that they can get back under the bar within like. You know, on the short end, like 60 to 90 seconds, they can get back under the bar. I don't necessarily push them to do that if I'm coaching them for the first time in person. But, you know, I've had trainees who start out with the empty bar, obviously. And at that point, the weight is definitely in absolute terms very light. Right. Um, but if they're starting out with a reasonable load on the bar, then I might I might give them, say, three minutes or something like that. Right. So but on day one, you're basically taking them up to a weight where the bar speed slows down or their technique is compromised and you're either trying to fix it or you'll uh -huh. go a little lighter than that anyway. So the weight is challenging, yes, but for a real no a true novice, it's just not, it's not substantial enough. It's not taxing enough to require a full five minutes, uh, for instance. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think going forward from there, I just have people time their rest periods. I mean, I don't, the 10 minute rest periods, I don't know. I don't know if that actually works. You know, you think about a patient, right? You see a patient and you say, you know, I want you to do this program and you're gonna go see this coach. And they're gonna, they say, you know what, I'll give you three hours of my 168 hours a week. I'll give you three hours. Well, you can't do that with 10-minute rest periods. Yeah. yeah I, you just can't. And it's not to say that it's wrong. It's just that I don't see a big, en a big enough benefit with a 10-minute rest period compared to a five-minute one. I think that's ultimately all you're doing is, you know, if you get the set and it was an art, you know, a 10 out of 10 effort, then I, I think you're still trending to the same place where you're going to have to, you're, you're circling the drain for the novice progression, which isn't a bad thing, I think, it's, you know, it's just, that's the statement of fact. That's the kind of thing, that's the kind of thing we also see a lot in people who are just grinding through in an, in an intermediate phase, grinding through real heavy weights on their Texas Method volume day, for example, and they're like, you know, RPE 9.5 on every one of their five sets of squats, and it's just, you know, those people crash and burn real hard. Yeah, yeah, it's effectively, you're almost testing instead of building, right? Like. Yep. If your 5RM is going up, I have a reasonable expectation that your absolute strength is going up, but I'm not sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So now let's let's switch gears. We got about, we're about a little over halfway there. Um, you want to get a patient to do starting strength LP. Well, why not just have them do cardio? So I think that one of the most compelling or some of the most compelling arguments that we have for this style of training have been constructed and uh, kind of elaborated very nicely by Dr. Sullivan. Um, and, and, and so the typical patient population that we see have a number of these kind of what we call comorbid diseases, a number of disease processes that are chronic, degenerative in nature most of the time, uh, diabetes, hypertension, um, cardiovascular disease. They might have uh, other kind of metabolic or endocrine issues involved. And so kind of what he has really done a great job of explaining uh, is that strength training as an intervention uh, really fits um, – all the right criteria to be a safe, effective, uh, efficient uh, exercise prescription that really targets the underlying kind of pathophysiology of a number of these conditions. And so, you know, when you have a morbidly obese patient with all these issues, their BMI is 50 or something like that, and I'm going to tell them, I want you to start walking. Walking can be taxing for them the first few times, for example. Uh, but in terms of incremental loading, in terms of their um, 
incremental benefit that they're going to get out of this over the long period of time, the trainability of it um, is, is, is relatively limited a lot of times by, say, uh, aches and pains that they have, their, you know, their, their access to, you know, their, they're not going to have coaching in this. They're just like kind of left out to go out on their own and do this, which oftentimes is a huge issue in terms of compliance. And so if I can get somebody hooked up with a coach who can, who, who knows how to work with this type of population, get them comfortable, kind of guide them through the process. And it's something that everybody can do some form like it's, it's, it's scalable in a way that everybody can do these basic barbell movements to some in, in, in some fashion on day one. Right. Not everybody can walk, jog or run a 5K on day one, but everyone can bend over with a flat back and pick something up either off the floor or off some low pins in the rack or something like that, essentially on day one. Wait, so but you're screening people for this, right? Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, that's a that's an inside joke, because there's been some folks who are popular on the uh, on the Internet who have suggested that you should screen people to see if they can squat or deadlift or whatever in but using other methods besides the actual squat or deadlift, which is not risky at all to do. So the reason you have a screening tool is because it's predictive. It has a lower risk of actually doing the thing that you're trying to do uh, and that it's sensitive enough to pick up uh, to pick up an issue um, where you would otherwise miss it. But none of those things are true of 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 screening. Yeah, the barbell lifts require absolutely no screening to be done and we've kind of elaborated on this in other in other mediums in in our article like hiding behind smoke screens i think was the witty title that we came up with for it Uh, (laughs) so i would agree with you as far as yeah the barbell training fits all the criteria one i would say from a training economy standpoint it offers more uh bang for your buck return on investment than any conditioning type that you could ever 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 fathom particularly for an untrained person mainly because as an untrained person their ability to express or to, to sustain a lot of cardiorespiratory training intensity is low. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that compromises uh, the modalities you can use, the duration of exercise that they can do, um, and ultimately the, the net effect as far as building muscle, as far as you know, increasing uh, uh, bone mineral density, as far as improving you know, work capacity or the ability to do activities of daily life, like walking or you know, getting more cardiorespiratory fitness um, without gaining more muscular force production does not help people do activities of daily life. I mean, you think about what are your activities of daily life that require a VO2 max of 60, you know, like right. <laughs> none. none. And, and in addition, that strength training also will increase people's VO2 max to a level that uh, comports with uh, this sort of cardiorespiratory minimum for optimal uh, mortality and mor- or morbidity rates. So that's the biggest Yeah, knock. I think so. It's like, oh, don't do strength training because or you need to do cardio with it, you know, to, to get your your VO2 max or whatever metric you want to use um, to the certain minimum so you don't, you know, have increased heart uh, risk of heart disease. And it's like, well, the data, in my opinion, clearly shows that strength training will improve someone's VO2 max or another res- uh, metric of cardiorespiratory fitness to a minimum that does, you know, reach that clinical significance where, you, okay, you've passed, you've passed that point. And so now you can, you're, you're effectively, uh, uh, you've met criteria to not for that not to be an issue, you know. Yeah, I think that's a that's an important point, and it and it kind of relates to something that oftentimes you know we talk about at the seminars, for example, where they go through the thought experiment as to how increasing someone's strength uh, can then end up subsequently having an effect on their force production or uh, their endurance. Sorry. Uh, in terms of like repeated submaximal efforts and stuff like that, and a lot of times we get some skepticism. You might get some rolled eyes. People are like, "How is?" 
how is uh, you know getting someone getting like Lance Armstrong squad up to 315 going to make him better able to win the the Tour de France or whatever? And that, and and it always comes back to the fact that that's not necessarily the people that we're talking about. The, the, the situation where the thought experiment is most obviously true is in these woefully untrained, un, unmuscle, under-muscled uh, uh, people who benefit the most from strength training. So, so if you take someone who's completely untrained, morbidly obese, has all these comorbid conditions, they have essentially no endurance, right? right. But if you strength train them, their ability to do those submaximal efforts dramatically improves. And all of a sudden you do see the situation where compared to where they started, their endurance has improved remarkably. Yeah, just right? So just I think that's the, most, that's the most obvious place where this, we see this happen all the time is in our completely untrained individuals where their endurance dramatically increases multiple factors of, you know, multiple fold over just by doing basic barbell training. Yeah. And I, have, you, have you read the book, uh, you've read the book Science of Running? I have not. Okay, so it, but it is interesting. So this book's all about improving running performance, <laughs> like go figure. But they talk very, very uh, uh, explicitly about strength training for endurance athletes, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, just talking about all the evidence to su- suggest that improving strength um, will improve someone's running, particularly if they're still running. So I, I would, I would say that yes, the that 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 thought experiment is strongest for the untrained person, but. It still does carry over for the competitive endurance athlete, provided that you are not doing something that would make you worse at the sport that you're trying sure. to get better. We never, we, we're not, we're never, we're not, certainly not excusing those people from the need to strength train. Sure. But the 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 understandability to the people that we're talking to at our seminars, like the most, the easiest way for them to grasp what we're talking about is to couch it in the context of somebody who's very very untrained. Because yeah. sometimes it's hard for them to grasp, like how is this elite athlete. You know, who are you to say this? Elite? We get that kind of thing all the time. Like, who are you to say this elite athlete is going to get better if they get stronger? And it's like, well, the data suggests that they will. But let me give you a blatantly obvious example. Let's take someone who has never moved or done anything physically uh, difficult in their life and get them triple their strength in a few months, which is not uncommon for in the novice program. Right. right. Well, so I think that's very. Yeah. So we've, we've covered effectively most of what I wanted to cover. I think a few other key things before I end with a surprise. So, uh my first move on starting strength linear progression when somebody starts to stall is automatically to put in the light day on a squat just mm-hmm. only because of the stress uh, basically gets a lim- you know a uh, uh, better spread out for somebody who's having trouble recovering from the stress and so on a light day the stock recommendation is 80 percent on a squat for two sets of five uh from what you did on day one for three sets of five uh, i actually don't hold hold hard and fast to the 80 percent. i think you know 70 percent 65 percent it's all fine it shouldn't feel terribly hard but it shouldn't be totally easy either so i know that's mm-hmm. kind of a nebulous term but yeah anywhere it, you know it may be that 80 percent is too much additionally I, I start putting the deadlift first on that day so this is a different thing but i just have people do deadlifts first on day two if they're doing a light the light squat day then do the press or the bench and then do the light squat uh, mainly because the squat's just more active recovery and the deadlift then gets to be trained fresh and i actually think that ends up you know, prolonging how far people yeah. can go on there. People are usually smoked by the end of their workouts and it comes time for their heavy set of five by that point. So yeah. that's a good idea. Yeah, do in the first place. Uh, the other thing I'll <laughs> have people do is uh, do sets of five all the way up to their deadlift top set of five, just so they get a little extra volume without adding explicit volume in there versus just doing, mm-hmm. you know, a set of three, a set of one, a set of one, and then doing their set of five. Just do sets of five all the way up because um, then you get a little more, a little more volume without totally changing the thing. Yeah, that's a common that's a common knock on the program is not enough pulling volume, and yeah, so that's a great five, way to build some more in. 
just do fives all the way up. Um, another thing that I'll do if people's bench or press are stalling early, uh, I will just add two more sets of five. I'll just have them do five sets of five. Uh, or sometimes just, you know, basically, I don't like switching into that Texas Method st style programming, but I just add a little more volume on one of the days, five sets of five, and then the other day they're going to do five sets of three. And the idea is to be able to go up and wait. Um, so if you do five sets of three, um, the idea is to keep the weight the same, then do five sets of five the next time, and then you can add two and a half pounds and mm -hmm. five sets of three, and so you're just stair-stepping it. Um, that was something I was going to want to bring in is the upper body lifts, which oftentimes, you know, people oftentimes will come out of the novice linear progression with, uh, with some frustration about their, uh, performance on their upper body lifts, especially compared to their squat, which gets really trained very hard in the novice program. So yeah, I, th uh, people oftentimes will just make the mistake of deloading their bench and their overhead press over and over and over again. And I think that's a huge mistake because you end up not really getting anywhere because you're still, you deload and then you're reinstituting essentially the same amount of training volume. And it's like, why would you expect that that's going to really get you much further? So adding volume to the upper body lifts earlier rather than later is a good idea. I agree. Uh, finally, so here's the surprise. You know, Austin, you do have a very good Ripito impersonation. Uh, and so do I. So I think, you know, let's just say, we'll say goodbye to everybody, our best Ripito impersonation. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> I'd, like to, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. I'm uh, Dr. Bill Feigenbaum and... Uh, <clears throat> awesome. All right. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Love it.